0: American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network, and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com give.
1: Hello and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, Digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world. Communicate it. If you like American Catholic history, please help others find it by sharing this episode and giving us a five star rating wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noel Heaster Crow.
0: And I'm Tom Crow.
1: Today, we're talking about Lawrence Welk, the North Dakota farm boy turned musician who overcame terrible shyness to become one of the most important band leaders and television personalities of the 20th century.
0: Right. Welk's television program ran for an incredible 31 years, and in his his day, only Bing Crosby was a more lucrative musical act. Crosby, of course, was also Catholic and will likely be telling his story in a few weeks.
1: But in today's episode, it's all about the king of champagne music. Now, I never really watched Lawrence Welk shows, but my mom would talk about him a lot. She was a big fan and really cool. I found a girl that I went to college with, Mary Grace Nelligan. He was actually her uncle. She was talking about how Uncle Larry would call um, at Christmas time every year. Great uncle, I should say, uh, her grandmother's brother. But anyways... Even after Welk retired in 1982, the show remained on the air in syndicated reruns, and it still runs on public television.
0: It's just an amazing run for any program, especially one that was so simple.
1: Right, and the cultural phenomenon that is the Lawrence Welk show didn't make sense to tons of people, but the show also had a very large and very loyal viewership. It simply wouldn't have lasted on network television for 31 years if it didn't. Welk
0: would say many times... that his secret was simple. Give the people what they want, something that they were familiar with and could understand. It had to be something that built them up rather than brought them down or confused them, and, importantly, Keep the songs less than three minutes in case viewers didn't like a particular song.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and he was very insistent on maintaining a wholesome and virtuous atmosphere so that no one would ever be scandalized by his program.
0: And all of this really rose from his German Catholic roots instilled by his family and community in the farmland of North Dakota.
1: So let's talk about that upbringing. Lawrence Welk was born on march eleventh, nineteen oh three. He was the sixth of eight children born to Ludwig and Christiana Welk. They probably would have said Welk actually because they spoke German at home on their farm near Strasbourg, North Dakota. That's about seventy five miles south of Bismarck, the state capital.
0: Both of Lawrence's parents were immigrants. They were ethnically Alsatian and they had come to the US via Odessa in the Ukraine. Their parents, Lawrence's grandparents, had fled the the Alsace region in the 19th century due to the war that ravaged that region of Europe. Through their migrations, they never lost their Alsacian customs nor their German tongue.
1: Lawrence didn't actually learn to speak English until his 20s. As we said, he spoke German at home. This is why he still has a noticeable accent on his show.
0: It was wonderful, wonderful. When the Welks arrived in North Dakota by horse-drawn wagon, They were homesteaders. Their first home was their wagon overturned over a dugout and covered with sod. There was no other house at first. They worked the land in the truest sense. They scratched out a living in the fertile soil of the upper Midwest, and no one gets wealthy doing that. Later in life, Lawrence said he got 12 cents spending money per year, and if a dry spell hit them, they had nothing to eat but what they could raise for themselves.
1: Mm. But they were sustained by their faith. They were a devout Catholic family with all regular sacraments, mass, at least on Sundays, if not more frequently, no matter the weather. They also prayed regular daily prayer.
0: As for schooling, Lawrence only completed the first three years of grade school, dropping out during fourth grade to focus on working the farm. Of his education and his faith, he later said, If I missed school, I never missed church. And if necessary, we drove our old horse and wagon through Dakota blizzards when we could barely see each other's faces. If I didn't know square root, I did know the infinite comfort and unity that stem from family prayers. It's just a beautiful way to put it. It
1: really is. So the expected trajectory for Lawrence's life, of course, was to continue in his father's footsteps as a farmer, raise a good Catholic family of his own, and keep it all up.
0: But fate intervened when Lawrence was 11. One morning, he complained of a pain in his side, and it was severe enough that his farm chores were not possible. His appendix had burst. By the time his parents rushed him to a hospital in Bismarck, again 75 miles away, infection had set in. He was in bad shape, but he survived. However, it did mean nearly a year of convalescence and bed rest. So what was he to do with this time?
1: Well, he read lots of books, for one. And for two, he picked up his dad's accordion. And that time of rest and recuperation proved to be the turning point of his life. Because of the experience, he realized how much he loved music and eventually decided that he wanted to make music his life's work.
0: Sounds like Ignatius of Loyola or Francis of Assisi. Spend a bunch of time laid up with nothing but good options to choose from and see what God leads you to.
1: Wow, that's uh, quite a narrative reach you did there.
0: <laughs> Perhaps, but when Lawrence Welk was canonized and made the patron saint of accordion players, <laughs> sometime after you and I have shuttered off this mortal coil, my narrative reach will prove prescient.
1: <laughs> uh-huh.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, fine, maybe not. But anyhow, he started playing accordion <laughs> when he was 11, and You're even ridiculous. after he went back to his farm chores, he kept playing. He had the bug. When he was 17, he approached his father with a bold announcement and a request. He informed his parents that he intended to make music, his life's work, rather than farming, and he asked his father for $400 to purchase a professional accordion, a really nice one, not another simple one like the one he'd worn out.
1: You're not kidding about a nice one. in 1920 is a bit over $5,500 today. So, yeah, we're talking about a really nice accordion.
0: Lawrence promised his father that he would remain at home and work on the farm until his 21st birthday to pay off the accordion.
1: In addition, any money he made at paid gigs and in working other people's farm would also go to the family.
0: His parents were opposed to him making music his life, in part because they really did want him to remain back at home and be a farmer, but even more so because they were concerned about the effect of the life of an entertainer on his virtue and morality. Musicians and other entertainers didn't exactly live lives of structure that encouraged morality.
1: Well, they raised him right. He had a strong moral compass. Show business didn't change him in that manner, but rather through his acts, he changed many others for the better.
0: And so, as previously announced, on his 21st birthday in March 1924, he packed his belongings and his accordion and moved out of his parents' house off to make life as a musician. The first year was mostly toddling around the upper Midwest, playing in other people's bands, catching gigs wherever he could. His first big consistent thing was with George T. Kelly's Peerless Entertainers, and with them he was billed the world's greatest accordion player. In 1927, he formed his own band for the first time, and they began playing regular gigs on a local radio station in South Dakota.
1: His signature style emerged early during this era. Simple, pleasing chord structures, smooth sound, and danceable rhythms. But
0: things weren't sitting well with his orchestra. The entire group quit in 1931, telling him he'd never make it in music.
1: In the face of this disaster, he later reflected... I had a sudden flash of insight. I realized that we are all vulnerable human beings. And whenever we put our love and faith into another human being, we are open to hurts and disappointments. So, he reasoned, the only one to trust completely is God. And once you can understand that and learn not to bear any malice or bitterness in your heart, your life will be much happier.
0: One important note in this perhaps was a contributing factor to the unhappiness of his bandmates, he did not miss Mass on Sundays, and he even went to daily Mass very frequently. Naturally, for a struggling touring band that has to go everywhere together and has to get gigs where they can when they can, finding Mass on Sundays and weekdays can put a serious crimp in the style. But for Welk, it was a simple matter. He was Catholic, Mass was part of his life, end of story.
1: Like we said, his parents raised him right.
0: Also, he got married in 1931, so that may well have had an impact on the satisfaction of his bandmates.
1: (laughs) Yes, marriage does change things.
0: Yes, yes, it does. In some ways that are predictable and also in many, many ways that you didn't even think to think of.
1: (laughs) But it all seems to have worked out for Welk because he and his wife Fern were married for 61 years until his death. It's
0: just remarkable. (laughs) So in 1931, Welk was a newly married man who was also reforming his band.
1: Quite a watershed, Year.
0: No wonder he was communing with God so intimately. <laughs>
1: oh, Seriously.
0: But he did reform his band with Fern at his side. He named his new band the Hotsy Totsy Boys, and it grew to 10 pieces in the 1930s. The gigs got bigger, and within a decade, Welk's band was no longer just touring the upper Midwest. They were playing in Chicago, Pittsburgh, and New York.
1: It was at the William Penn Hotel in Pittsburgh in 1938 where someone first described Welk's musical style as light, bubbly, and frothy, like champagne. The comment may not not have been meant as a compliment, but Well pleased on the descriptor. He even renamed his act. The champagne music of Lawrence Welk.
0: In the 1940s, his act made Chicago their new headquarters. This period also saw him finally face his utter fear of public speaking. For the most part, he had managed to remain just the accordion player in the band, and he wasn't expected to speak and lead the show. But with his position as the leader of the band, he had to be the one to introduce songs and lead. It was opening night for his band at the outdoor dance floor of the Edgewater Beach Hotel on the shores of Lake Michigan. He was terrified of stepping up to the microphone to speak, but he knew he had to do it. So finally, he ambled up to the mic, closed his eyes, and rattled off the prepared marks he'd memorized. He was so absorbed in getting out his words that he was shocked and horrified when he opened his eyes and found that the dance floor was suddenly empty. Then his second shock was the realization that, while he was speaking, the skies had opened and a summer storm had begun to fall. Everyone had run for cover. He was mortified by this embarrassment, but it led to much reflection about why he was so shy. He realized it was because he doubted himself and thought himself inferior to others due to his accent and his poor education.
1: Over the years, while he never fully overcame his shyness and dread of speaking in public, he came to accept himself for who he was and came to some important realizations. In an article about his own shyness, he closed by saying... If shyness is faced honestly, divorced from self-consciousness, and grounded in a sincere attempt to follow Christ's teaching, it can bring about a feeling of humility, gentleness, modesty, and compassion. Within my own heart, I would rather strive for these things than for all the self-confidence in the world. I do not believe that I would have had the courage to face up to my shyness, however, had I not first recognized God as my creator, Shyness and all, Christ as my strength and example, and the Holy Spirit as my source of constant inspiration.
0: Powerful. In 1951, Welk and his band moved west to Santa Monica, California, and they played the Aragon Ballroom in Venice Beach. That same year, the big break happened. A local television station, KTLA, broadcast one of their sets from the Aragon. The response was utterly surprising. Welk recalled, The show was nothing really special. We played our usual arrangements for the dancers. I danced with some of the ladies and joked with the guests.
1: But the response was very special. Positive feedback poured into the KTLA offices. Welk was inspired. He wrote that he had an absolutely firm feeling that the boys and I had come home and that television was the thing we had been looking for. I went home and said to Fern, I think we finally found our place in life.
0: KTLA responded by continuing to broadcast Welk's weekly shows locally. It became a local hit. Four years later, ABC came calling, and The Lawrence Welk Show was born as a national sensation.
1: Critics immediately panned the show as superannuated schmaltz, rickety-tick, and as hopelessly square. What the heck is (laughs) rickety-tick?
0: It's an oldie, timey and uh, rickety, tickety insult, I suppose.
1: I've never heard of it. So before. Neither have I. <laughs> I'll
0: start working it into my vocabulary. It'll pop up in a few episodes coming up here. <laughs> just rickety tick. Yeah, just rickety tick. But what do the professional critics know apart from some weird words? The viewers loved it, and over the ensuing thirty-one years, the Lawrence Welk Show was always in the top thirty programs on the air. Usually in the top twenty, and on occasion, it even cracked the top ten. Welk's big band musical act, as square as it was when compared to contemporaries like Benny Goodman, Duke Ellington, Tommy Dorsey, and others, outlasted them all as a continuous act with new shows.
1: The secret, as we suggested before, was largely in Welk's attitude towards being called square. He said, I grew up in a community of squares. I felt at home with them. And even today, I'd say that most of the fans we meet on our tours may be somewhat on the square side. Squares, as a group, tend to enjoy clean, fun, understandable music, pretty and wholesome girls, and entertainment that builds up and doesn't tear down.
0: Sounds pretty good to me. I mean, it's hip to be square. Hip, 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 hip to be square. <laughs> hip, hip, hip. So hip what has
1: gotten into to you tonight? I try, I try. You try? I try <laughs> too hard sometimes. <laughs> Whatever.
0: So, back to the critics. A lot of ink has been spilled about the Lawrence Welk show and why it was so successful. What the critics saw was light and bubbly arrangements of popular standard songs performed by wholesome, poly women and clean shaven stand up guys right through the 60s and 70s when all of that innocent stuff was being pushed aside and derided. Well, the general thought was that the success came from being so countercultural. But all the world was saying everything needed to change and get with it, man. Welk said no. He refused to give in to the times. He insisted on delivering the simple, accessible, wonderful, wonderful entertainment that he knew his audience wanted. Welk wasn't worried about the critics. He was focused on what his audience wanted.
1: And that extended to managing his employees, including the singers and musicians. He wanted no scandals on set. In one instance, he fired a trombone player because the man, who was a Catholic, made known his intention to remarry after he had gotten divorced. Others prevailed upon Welk to rehire the man, telling him, Let him control his life. You just control his trombone.
0: In another instance, in the 1960s, he had to fire his longtime champagne lady. Now, champagne lady was the title given to the lead female singer in the band. He would frequently dance with her during other songs. He had to fire her because she insisted on wearing skirts of shorter and shorter lengths. Welk simply would not allow the deteriorating morals of society to infect his show in that manner.
1: The Lawrence Welk Show ran weekly on ABC until 1971, when ABC decided his audience, which really hadn't shrunk, was just a bit older than what they wanted. So beginning in 1971, Welk self-produced his show and made it available through syndication. The show remained on the air without interruption from coast to coast. And in fact, the number of stations that carried his program went up after he self-syndicated to 250 stations.
0: The Lawrence Welk show remained on the air for 11 more years until Welk decided to retire in 1982. But I mean, he turned 79 that year. His show had been on the air for 31 years and was still very, very popular. I suppose he kind of had a right to retire.
1: (laughs) After retirement from television, Welk spent more time in his various properties. This is something else most don't realize. Leading a cultural phenomenon musical television show wasn't the only thing Welk did successfully. He also invested in various properties over the years. Some entertainment and resort space, some retirement communities, some office space, and the like. His properties and other investments also did very well. He was a shrewd and intelligent man of business.
0: All told, Lawrence Welk really was a truly great all-American success story.
1: And through it all, he remained a faithful, daily Mass-going Catholic.
0: Ten years after the final new episode of The Lawrence Welk Show aired, Lawrence Welk died of pneumonia in his Santa Monica apartment with Fern, his wife of 61 years, and much family by his side.
1: But to this day, Lawrence Welk's show reruns can be found on public television stations. It still delivers simple, clean, trustworthy entertainment, all led by the simple, straightforward North Dakota farm boy who learned to play accordion and, through faith in God, to trust that if he did just the right thing, that was enough. May we all learn to be as simple and straightforward and bring as much joy to others as Lawrence Welk. You've been listening to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help others find it by sharing this episode and by giving us a five-star rating and a good review.
0: Be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. Also, please support the many fine productions of SQPN at sqpn.com slash give.
1: To learn more about Lawrence Welk, To find previous episodes or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimages to important and unforgettable Catholic holy sites, please visit AmericanCatholicHistory.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter for the latest information and updates. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast or follow us on Twitter at ACH 1513. I'm Noel Hester-Crowe.
0: And I'm Tom Crowe.
1: Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by StarQuest.
0: Wonderful, wonderful.